This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today are James and Kyle from Munson's at the Movies. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks so much for joining me. How's everyone's weekend going? Good, man. I um, I drove home after quarantining for 14 days in my house, drove back to Long Island to see my family for Thanksgiving, so that was a good old 12-hour drive yesterday. <laughs> Uh, the first eight hours of it were good, and then the last four is, is kind of where uh, the morale on the ship got low, and me and my wife started getting angry at things we had no control over. But we're we're back to neutral now, so we're good. Well, I'm glad you were able to do the quarantine. I've been quarantining for a little bit now, and I'm driving down to Connecticut, which is a much more manageable two hours, James. But uh, doable, absolutely yeah. <laughs> doable. Yes. Yeah. So that'll be exciting. How about you, Kyle? How you doing? I'm doing really well, uh, minus my lines getting absolutely destroyed today. Um, other than that, I guess I'm okay. Um, the the lady went home to Florida for the week, so I'm I'm riding solo with the dog and the cats here in uh, Baltimore, trying to avoid uh, getting anyone sick and going home. So I'll be um, batting down the hatches and hanging out here and watching movies. Awesome. Well, I am sorry for you being a Lions fan. I cannot relate. Uh, up here, I am a bandwagon Pats fan, which usually works out for me, so... I you respect know. you acknowledging the bandwagon. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. When when we're good, when we're good, I'm all for it. When we're bad, I'm like, okay, whatever. And I just don't want it. So. <laughs> it probably live a longer life feeling that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can say something I haven't been able to say in a long time, uh, 11 weeks into a season. That's the Lions and the Patriots have the same exact record right now. Wow. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> the Jets haven't won a game us. since <laughs> the Jets haven't won a game since COVID wasn't a thing. So <laughs> you guys are doing fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's still time, James. There's What's the bigger time. issue here is the real question. Yeah. <laughs> so, James, you've been on the podcast a few times before, uh, most recently to review Netflix's original film, Project Power. Um, that was a great conversation. So listeners, definitely check that out if you're looking for some Netflix recommendations. We had a lot to say about that. Uh, and it's great to have you back this time with one of your co-hosts from Munson's, Kyle. So great to have you for the first time. Uh, your guys' podcast focuses on the filmography of a specific actor. So this week, we're going to just be doing something somewhat similar. Um, in preparation for the release of David Fincher's Netflix film, Mank, we're going to be talking about our top five favorite Fincher films. It's good alliteration there. Um, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while since we've had a top five episode on the podcast, so I'll just explain how this is going to go. James, Kyle, and I will take turns counting down our top five favorite Fincher films, starting at number five. Given that Fincher has actually only directed 10 films, we will likely have a lot of the same films on our lists. So when that happens, we'll discuss the film the first time it appears in any of our lists. 
And then to avoid confusion, we'll wrap up the episode by saying our complete list so you know who to yell at or email or whatever for leaving out your favorite. (laughs) With that in mind, this is a reminder that these lists are, of course, completely personal and subjective, and we'll be talking about these films in detail. So this is your one and only spoiler warning for all the Fincher films that we talk about. And if you'd like to skip a section to avoid spoilers, I will provide timestamps in the show notes for each film so that you can do that. And lastly, as usual with these special format episodes, we will be skipping the usual point two section to give us more time to talk about these films. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, uh, let's get started. So David Fincher is one of the most iconic American directors of the last 30 years. As I mentioned before, he has only directed 10 films, with Mank being his 11th. But almost all of his other films are critically acclaimed, and each of them has, in my opinion, such a personal stamp that it seems impossible to imagine anyone else directing any of those films. But just as a refresher or as information for the uninitiated, the 10 films in chronological order are Aliens Cubed, C7N, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl, all the way in 2014. So it's been a while. Uh, James, let me ask you first, have you seen all of David Fincher's films? I have seen eight of the 10. Uh, the two that haven't seen is Aliens Cubed. I, Aliens is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Um, and the original and the sequel are both awesome. And Aliens Cubed was one of those movies that growing up I had no interest in seeing. And I didn't even know he directed it until this podcast. Literally <laughs> never crossed my mind. Um, and the other one was The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And that is only because my idiot brain, when that came out, saw that and was like, that looks like one of those movies that really wants to win an Oscar. And that bored me at the time. And I have, to this day, never gotten around to seeing The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah, that one took me a long time to see because it's almost three hours. And I also appreciate you just embracing Aliens Cubed. I, I think it might be Aliens 3, but whatever. <laughs> it is Aliens 3, okay. but Cubed is funny. I agree. <laughs> and so seven and made me laugh as well. <laughs> James, I think you're spot on with Benjamin because I think it got like 13 Oscar nominations. Yep. So and it just look, if you say something's long and there's a chance it's boring, my ADD refuses to acknowledge that it could be good. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. So was it tough to narrow down from eight just to five or was it pretty easy to just say, oh, these are the five that I want to talk about? I think the order was tough. Um, I think there are a few movies that could fight for like the fourth or the fifth spot. And so my top three was a lot easier for me to do than number four and five. Like I felt like if I heard one of the cases that you guys make for number four and five, and it's similar to what I have there, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. What I left off should be number five. Uh, I'm not as defended of the number four and five on my list as I am as number one, two, and three. Um, Because a lot of the movies are somewhat similar. I feel like Mm -hmm. the tone is similar and they're super fascinating. And I could have been easily persuaded on my, the, the end of my list. All right. What about you, Kyle? Have you seen all of his films and was it difficult to narrow it down to five or are you like James? I'm I'm with James, but the two that I haven't seen are different. So I'm at eight of 10 and I haven't seen the game and I haven't seen weirdly enough, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, I don't know why the game, I just have never really came upon uh, the girl with the dragon t- tattoo. I, I don't know. I just, 
same kind of thing. I, I think people talked about how heavy it was uh, when it came out. And I think at the time I just wasn't mm-hmm. super obsessed with movies yet at that point. So I just haven't gotten around to it at this point in time. But the, the list itself, my one, two, and five were pretty set. Three and four, I kept switching back and forth. So similar, similar to James. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad that we have all of the films covered between the three of us because I also have seen eight of ten. Um, I have not seen Panic Room and I have not seen uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, actually. So um, I was planning on seeing those before this came out, but then I was looking at the five and I was like, there's no way one of these movies is going <laughs> to knock out one of the five. So I was like, I, you know, like, like you, Kyle, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it's also like two hours and 45 minutes. And I was like, this is going to mm-hmm. be depressing. And yep. then. Oh, it is. Okay. It absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. I almost watched the Swedish version at one point. I'll, I'll say that, but no, I didn't get to this version. Okay, if you cool. read the plot of The Girl of the Dragon Tattoo, you'll realize, wow, that would be tough to watch for two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't the tagline like the feel bad movie of Christmas season or yeah. something? It's we can we could get into it uh, as we go through the lists. But yes, okay. uh, I'm assuming neither of you have it on your list. That was definitely one of the movies that almost made the cut on mine. Um, I really enjoyed that movie, but it just missed the cut because like you said, it's long, uh, but he does do kind of depressing stories well. And it was mm-hmm. super fascinating. Um, it's about a girl who is going out of her way to seek revenge on men who are, you know, rapists or, you know, known for sexually assaulting people. And she doesn't like get them back in a way that is sort of like, oh, good, the justice system has served us and these men are in trouble. It's like she's brutally torturing these men and it it gets heavy and that's a lot to handle for (laughs) two hours. A little vigilante justice. Yeah, it's not like, oh, good, they're going to be locked up. I'm glad she did that. It's like, no, she's almost on the verge of killing these people. I'm excited for it. I know we talked about it in the last episode, James, but I'm excited for you to see Promising Young Woman because it's a similar storyline with a, a slightly different take. Yes, I'm pumped about that as well. Oh, I had no idea that that's what that was about. I've just gone completely cold on that, but I know everybody loves it. So I'm very excited. Pretend for that. I didn't talk about it. Okay. And <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think also um, in terms of whittling down my eight to five was, was relatively easy. Um, there's one film that I can say as an honorable mention afterwards, maybe if it's not on one of your guys' lists. But other than that, very, very solid five. And to be frank, I feel like my top five is a like a super normie list. Um, <laughs> I tried to justify making one of those top five like this kind of left field pick, but I was just like, no, I, th- there's five films that I feel are very just clearly his five films. So I'm interested if we all have the exact same five films or if there's a little bit of mix up. Um, we'll see. But with that, Kyle, why don't you start us off since you are the newest guest? I'm just going to put you on the spot. What is your number five Fincher film? Number five for me is Aerosmith's Janie's Got a Gun. (laughs) Although if you watch that video, it's very clearly Fincher because it is a classic. It's a neo-noir music video. Even freaking Justin Timberlake's suit and tie is uh, is so clearly Fincher. All right. So my number five is probably, as I look at this list, the most popular for pop culture wise, but I think in terms of, his work, I would say number five for me is Fight Club. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. 
Second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. All right. What about you, James? Just curious. Is that in your top five? That is number three for me. Okay. And Fight Club is number five for me as well. So Kyle, go ahead. Take it away. Body, we're here. We're on the same page. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a movie for me that I, I see. Uh, it's iconic. Like, uh, If you ask the general person, you give them a list of, of movies and you ask them, which one do you think is most popular? I feel like Fight Club's always going to be the one that people choose. Um, I mean, it's quoted often. What I love most about Fight Club is the satirical elements of it, not necessarily what you see on the screen um, and the fact that it's just poking fun and masculinity from start to finish. And so from from a commentary and theme standpoint, I, I love Fight Club. Um, even the author, he said it was an improvement on his novel, which you don't hear very often yeah. when it comes to <laughs> movies, right? Like most people say that the book's better than the movie. His case, he's like, yeah, the movie's better than what I could pull off. Fincher's a, a genius. So those are those are many of the reasons why I pitch, pick Fight Club at five. Yeah, completely agree with what you're saying. Um, I think this movie is one of those classic movies that people will cite as an example of a movie that people enjoy incorrectly, right? And I think a lot of the time, you know, people who have Fight Club posters in their dorm rooms or had or whatever, they didn't understand that, like what you're saying, Kyle, it's that it's a satire, right? It's a satire on masculinity and what happens when people use their frustrations with what's ever going on in their life to kind of excuse violence and these perverse actions. So I think that part's really interesting. Um, Kyle, I'm curious, the first time you saw it, I don't know when that was, but did you know the big twist in this film? Because it is an iconic twist. No, no, I, I went into it pretty, pretty, uh, pretty raw from that standpoint. I was, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty young at that point in time. So I, w- I was probably the target market for not completely understanding <laughs> what was going on with the film movie. Yeah, I um I knew the twist before going in. And so it was definitely one of those things where the first time I was watching it, I was like, how are people so stupid? This is so obvious because <laughs> retrospectively, it's super obvious, which is the best type of twist, of course. But um, yeah, he really beats you over the head with them being the same character um, mm-hmm. if you know what you're looking for. But uh, James, what about you? Why is this number three for you, Fight Club? So I think this is one of those movies that... Um, Marty, you kind of hit it on the head where the fact that people missed the message about it is not something I'd, I think is something we should fault a movie for. Mm -hmm. And just because a movie or a show has fans who are idiots and might suck. And this movie definitely (laughs) suffers from that uh, is not something I would want to fault the movie or the director for. Right. So like, I love fight. Right. Exactly. Like I love fight club and the fact that like, the general population of like douchey idiots thought it was a positive reflection of how they should be acting. Like is not something I fault Fincher for that is, I think it's a great movie. I think I, if you haven't read the book, like the, I didn't see the twist coming at all. It blew my mind. 
um, and it was dark and it made you want to rewatch it and pick up on the things you missed, but also think about kind of the message it's getting across. And I think it suffered a lot from the fact that the people who love this movie have no idea the message that it's trying to get across. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something I, I think it's unfairly like held against it as a negative. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think it's also weird that this movie is sometimes kind of viewed so simplistic because it's a really weird film. And I think one of the things that kind of trumps the overall message of this film or not trumps, but like kind of overshadows it when you think about the conversations that you have about Fight Club is that twist ending. And it's like everybody is always talking about, oh, my God, did you see the twist coming? I mean, we literally just had that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if there's almost a part of people who kind of just think about the film as this crazy film that's you know has this badass and invigorating action to it and then oh man this crazy twist and they don't even really stop to think about how this actually is about a generation of people who you know feel isolated by society Mm -hmm. and all of this crap so i think it's a good point to like not necessarily fault the um the film for that yeah it's it's a after you watch the movie you realize that the plot and the story is not what you thought it was And when you know the twist, then you're like, you can reflect more on the plot and the story and about how it's a man with a severe mental illness that is kind of going through the motions of life and ends up creating a terrorist group. And the people (laughs) who miss the point are like, yeah, but like, you know, society doesn't understand us. It's like, these men killed people. They're terrorists. Like, this is supposed to show that this is a bad thing. It's like, yeah, but Brad Pitt was so ripped, you know, like, isn't that cool? <laughs> and to be fair, Brad Pitt was pretty awesome. In he was absolutely movie, ripped. You know? <laughs> yeah, no question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can go into it. I think what's what's great about twist films like this is the first time you watch it, if you're not like Marty and know what's going to happen, you just get to have the like roller coaster experience where you're like, oh, I didn't know that last turn was going to happen. But when you go back through and you rewatch it, and then you're watching it with a whole new lens and you're, you're starting to see the, the hints come along, you know, hit at different parts of the movie. Um, and I guess depending on the approach you want to take, you can either go into it with the jockey. I'm just going to watch it from a purely, uh, you know, first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club and just go in with that sense. Or you could go in with more of a, an analytical film Twitter side. So a little somber, everybody. Yeah. So is there a reason, Kyle, for you that this is at five as opposed to higher? I mean, I think after a certain point, right? Five verse four verse three is all relatively. So, you know, it's, it's kind of silly to compare a five to a three, but is there a reason that this was five as opposed to higher or just that you connected with some of the other films more? I think it's strictly the other four are just overall better products comparatively in my mind. Okay. I don't think it, I don't think it has because of anything it lacks. It's more so some of the relevance with some of these other ones and the execution with the neo-noir Uh, approach that i like more all right awesome so that is fight club was kyle's number five it is my number five and it is james's number three so why don't we go to james for your number five film so my number five film for fincher was the introduction i actually got into fincher even though uh, some of the movies on my list might be older than this one this is the first one i saw because i saw it like the moment it became available on uh, VHS, and that is The Game, which came out in 1997. 
it was like the first twist thriller my parents let me watch and what would that make me i was like 10 when they got it on vhs so this was like the most in-depth mind-blowing experience i had ever uh (laughs) I had experienced at that point in my life. Have, is that on any of your guys' list? This is not on my list. I haven't seen it. That's why I figured that it, it wasn't going to make it onto your guys' list. Um, so the game is like, what makes it interesting is it's kind of got like a, what's a, it's a rich guy who is, you know, Michael Douglas playing a rich guy, which is like the role Michael Douglas plays. Mm-hmm. And he's miserable in his life and nothing excites him. All he does is, like the Gordon Gecko routine where he just, you know, snaps necks and cashes checks, classic like Michael Douglas picture. And then all of a sudden someone starts messing with him by like leaving, like it's his birthday and he gets home from dinner and there's a huge clown doll on his front door that takes up the whole door. And he's like, well, that's kind of concerning. What's okay. What is this? And it starts leading to riddles that, you know, people are messing with him and it's this whole like conspiracy theory. And it, it, someone described it online. I thought it was a good way to describe it. It's like a Fincher's version of like a wonderful life and a Christmas Carol kind of mixed together, Mm. but with like a dark mission impossible vibe where he thinks the government's out to get him. But um, the spoiler alert twist ending is that it's this big grand birthday gift that his brother uh, played by Sean Penn got him. That is this company that like makes you realize what you want out of life by like faking with actors Mm -hmm. ruining your life. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's called the game is he, his life becomes in shambles, but little does he know is everyone's in on it the entire time. Hmm. Yeah, this is definitely a good one. Um, I saw it, God, you know, sometime earlier this week in the, not earlier this week and earlier this year in the endless months of the um, quarantine. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it is really good. And I think I may have like misunderstood it when I watched it. And then I was actually listening to a podcast from The Ringer that was like a rewatchables about um, about the game. And they talked about how the film is more of like a parable where it doesn't really exist in the same reality that we exist in and so there's a lot of things in this movie that sort of happen that are a bit unrealistic and like the extent to which this person goes into this game and everything is kind of insane and it falls apart if you think about it for a little bit but this idea of um like midlife paranoia and the unsatisfactory of the middle class and and all of this stuff i think it does really well and it's it's really intense and exciting movie and i think it's almost um i don't know exactly do you know what year it came out? 97. 97. So this was post seven, but pre fight club. So it almost has yep. like a, uh, like an anti twist ending where the twist is that it's, it's normal game, life. Yeah. yeah. That he signs up for so that, you know, um, but it does a really good job where you are consistently going like, Oh, it's, it's a game. Wait, it's not it. Wait, no, yeah. it is. Is someone yeah. taking this too far? Hold yeah. on. All right, no, no, it's the thing he signed up for. And then you're like, no, this is ruining his life. And you're like, uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, spoiler for the ending. It's revealed when he actually tries to kill himself and he jumps off of a building. And when he lands, he lands on one of those inflatables that helps people jump off of buildings. And every one of his family members is there like waiting to celebrate his birthday and he, he like crashes through this window and lands on the thing he's supposed to land on. And everyone's like, 
happy birthday, he's here. And that's when I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, I thought, <laughs> and dude, I, it, it was my introduction into Fincher and Twists, and I was bought in from the beginning. I was like, all right, I have to rewatch that and see. Um, there are definitely plot holes that don't hold up when you rewatch it, but for uh, a young kind of film enthusiast, this was exactly what I needed to get into it. So we did kind of just ruin this movie for Kyle, but <laughs> James, would you recommend that Kyle still watch this even though he doesn't, you know? Yes, absolutely. You, know. you can go into it like Fight Club where now he knows the ending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could track it and see if I could pick out the parts ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll awesome. Have the men in black phase me and I'll just pretend like I'm <laughs> Thank you for sacrificing the sanctity of your the game experience to come on this podcast, Kyle. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so that is the game, and that is James's number five Fincher film. And so, like we said, my five is Fight Club, so I'm just going to throw it back to Kyle for his number four. What's your four? Number four for me is Gone Girl, and it is Gone Girl because of two words, and that is Rosamund Pike, who is astounding in that role. Gone Girl is my number three. Okay. And it's my number four as well, Kyle. Same same spot on my list. Okay. So we're, we're on page. For me, Gone Girl is, it's number four because when I look at this genre of revenge female thriller, which we've talked about a little bit already, um, the concept of she is not, she's not getting revenge because, or through gruesome means by killing other men or killing her husband or boyfriend or whatever. Um, she's not necessarily doing that, nor is she getting back at him through like finding another man and getting a job. She's going down an entire route to watch his life burn from the outside looking in. And I absolutely love that plot narrative. It's not something you, you've seen um, at that point. And it's just such a rewatchable movie. It's so good. And like, yeah, you could, I think we talked about it, James, you could critique the acting of Ben Affleck if you'd like, but Rosamund Pike is just, she's so good in this movie. Yeah, she she's super cold, and you can't tell if she's a good person or a bad person. I and I didn't know the story uh, the first time I watched it, and I know then I realized that is you know the main selling point of the story is her and her husband are both good and bad people that you don't mm -hmm. know who to root for, and mm -hmm. you kind of flip flop as the story goes on. Kyle, you just nailed it. That it is so rewatchable. It is just incredibly entertaining which I think um, is true and also maybe sometimes not true about a lot of Fincher's films where like this one is dark. It's there's one scene in particular that's incredibly fucked up and I'm sure you guys both know what I'm talking about. But this film is just so fun to watch. It's kind of funny. Ben Affleck is great. Rosamund Pike is great. Um, and I love the way that like the mystery script from Gillian Anderson. Uh, I always mix them up, Gillian Anderson and Gillian Flynn, but Jillian <laughs> Flynn uh, and Fincher's kind of style at this exactitude is is so great. Um, it's my number three because I just think that their relationship, the Amy and Nick Dunn relationship, is so fascinating. Um, because, like you're saying, we don't know if they're good people or bad people. Although I would argue that, you know, Amy literally killed a guy, so she's probably a bad person. But, like, you understand why they're with each other. Which is this weird thing because, like I said, Amy literally killed a dude and Ben Affleck yep. cheated on her. Um, and so 
this you're like not sure who to root for the whole time and yeah keeps you going back and forth right yeah, and, and it's it is this like again talking about parables and stuff, this very haunting parable of like marriage and like how, you know, marriage is supposed to bring the best out in each people, but in this case it's clearly bringing out the worst and it's just such a fun film especially in that twist. Um this is a film that I did not know the twist going into and that is a genuinely holy shit moment when yeah, you find it. out what's going on. A really weird part of this movie for me and it probably we can cut this if you want to, but um just seeing Tyler Perry in like a really dramatic yeah. lawyer role was just <laughs> Dude, he was... It just shocked the system for me. Tyler Perry's Gone Girl. Yeah, like I don't get me wrong, I would love to, you know, just make fun of a Tyler Perry role here, but I thought he was good in this. I thought he played good as like the pretentious lawyer who's kind of sleazy and like immediately is like, oh, your wife's a psychopath. Oh, your husband's a piece of shit. Like I could work with this. We can make this happen. And I'm like, oh, this is a normal life for you, man. This is blowing the rest of us away it was like me at the end of tropic thunder not realizing what's his face was tom cruise um and i got <laughs> to the end of the movie i was like oh that was tyler perry the whole time like yeah totally blew me away you're used to him in medea outfits and shit uh-huh like good for him man <laughs> hey range when i the first time i saw this movie i really appreciated how the cops that were interviewing ben affleck had the same thoughts i did about his answers where yeah they were like, what do you guys fight about? Do you ever fight about money? He's like, nah, money's never been an issue. And they like stop. And she talks to the other cops. She's like, do you and your wife fight about money? He goes, all the time. It's the only thing we ever fight about. He's like, me and my husband <laughs> fight about money nonstop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm interested in what you said, Kyle, about how you can debate whether Ben Affleck's acting is good in this. Because I actually really love Ben Affleck in this. I think it's his best performance mm-hmm. because... It is amazing when you're rewatching this movie. It's amazing how guilty he seems when yeah, you know time. that he literally didn't kill Amy. And I think Ben Affleck does this amazing job at playing somebody who does have to be smart, but he's also kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. And like, like you need Nick Dunn to be smart enough and charming enough to keep up with Amy and to actually win her over in the beginning. That has to be believable. But then you also need him to kind of be stupid and almost like naive about how he comes off to media so that he'll do things like unpromptingly say, hey, guys, just letting you know, I didn't kill my wife or <laughs> smile like, in idiot. front of Why her missing poster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, has to, he has to harness his anger and try to be strategic and smart through this and then that's got it's incredibly difficult to do it's quite the task yeah i just think he it's almost kind of like what ben affleck does in real life because like you know he's a smart guy he wrote goodwill hunting he directs great movies but then every now and then he'll be in the media for something really stupid that he did or he's like gonna be batman and you're like what are you doing dude like (laughs) How how are you this unaware? So uh, I think it's great casting on um, on mm-hmm. David Fincher's part. I'm curious what you guys think about Neil Patrick Harris in this, because this is the one part of the movie that I'm a little wishy-washy on, and I don't care for him too much in the movie. Neil Patrick Harris. Hmm. Uh, he is, I think they were capitalizing on his Barney character from How I Met Your Mother with like the pretentious snob kind of vibe. And I think that's something that he pulls off really well. I think what he struggles with is the psychopath side of the character. So like mm. he does really well as the, I'm the best. I'm, you know, I'm the middle of the universe. I think that uh, comedically he does that well, but I agree. I think on the 
thinking of him as like a truly evil person was tough for me to follow as well. Yeah, to me, I could never shake the fact that he was just playing Barney in How I Met Your Mother in one of those like really elaborate setups. And mm-hmm. so I always felt like he was just projecting too much humor. And maybe that's like my baggage as the audience. But for some reason, I could never take him seriously in that role. And so for me, it was like, wow, he's so miscast. But then I think, okay, Fincher would cast him for a reason. You know, he he's very notorious for having complete control over his movies. I'm pretty confident he would just like kick the guy out of the movie if he didn't think he had the chops. So mm-hmm. I've got like sort of, I don't know if it counts as a conspiracy theory or maybe just like too elaborate of a a reason for why he's in this movie. And I'm wondering if it's because, just bear with me here for a second, that Neil Patrick Harris is conventionally attractive and he's a well-known actor, but compared to Ben Affleck, he's just on all accounts inferior. And it's almost <laughs> like meta to cast this television actor who's just trying to take control of Rosamund Pike and still be this kind of like manipulative person, but he's just completely outclassed by Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck, which is kind of like a competition between these giants. And so I maybe that's just like reading too in-depth into something that was just like a studio saying that Neil Patrick Harris should be in this movie. I don't know. But there is something about how like he's this smurf of a dude who I, I actually think he is a talented actor, so it sounds like I'm shitting on him, but there's something about this television actor just being a pawn in this game between Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck. I think there's something there. I can imagine him being the stalker, but like them being afraid of him is the part that was hard. I was like, Ben Affleck's got like 200 pounds on him. (laughs) It'd be creepy, but they'd eventually fight or something and it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, But I definitely think it probably had more to do with, hey, he could figure out how to play the pretentious guy because he kind of does play the comedic version of the pretentious guy. Like, they can make that happen. And then they probably were asking him to do more than that. And that might just be the comfort spot for him. And then when it's like, hey, you also have to be a psychopath. And it's like, well, I've never really done that before. What would that look like? <laughs> yeah. Watch some YouTube videos. You know? Yeah, yeah right. Well, you know, he is very good at getting his throat slit by a box cutter because that is oh, a terrifying yeah. scene. I mean, he, yeah, he's that's... really eyes on those moments. Right there. I mean, to think of the extremes of what he's experiencing right there. It's when I was watching that, I was like, I know what she's going for, and I still feel bad for what this guy's about to experience. <laughs> like, it's going to go from what he thinks is the best experience to by far the worst possible experience you could be having. Oh uh, yeah, and then the rest of the episode or movie basically, she's just coated in his blood. Like she doesn't yes. shower for the longest time. It's God, she's. I mean, sociopaths do. Yeah, yeah that's man. that's the thing that's interesting about this movie is that it very clearly paints Rosamund Pike's Amy as a psychopath or somebody who's definitely mentally unstable. And I'm not sure how similar that is to the Gillian Flynn script, um, or I mean the book at least. And I think there is some like criticisms of this movie that, you know, Fincher doesn't quite crack. Yeah. He doesn't quite crack the, um, the Amy Dunn character, but I think she's a great character and she's definitely like by far Fincher's most interesting female character. Um, Mm -hmm. which is another reason why I love this one. All right. So gone girl is, uh, Kyle and James's number four film. And it is my number three. So that leads me or us to my fourth film, 
and that is Zodiac. It's all coincidence aside, Robert. How can you be sure that Lee Allen is a lead from this file? Now, Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both Northern and Southern California with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door, that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Jesus Christ. So, um, is this on your list at all, either of you? It's my number three. It was one of the ones that was in my could be number five, and you guys will definitely make a case for me to put it there. Okay. Yeah, so Zodiac is a film that I did not like much the first time that I watched it. Um, I've only seen this twice. I rewatched it this week, but the first time I watched it several years ago, it was definitely on the outside of the top five looking in. And I had heard so much about why people like this movie, and I was just like, I never really got it. it. It was just like pretty boring to me. And I think the reason that I was so disappointed by it the first time was that I didn't know the true Zodiac story and how it ended, which is that he was never arrested. And then, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, he ran for president <laughs> in 2016. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. But but actually, the you know, the ultimate story of the Zodiac killer is that even after years and years of this investigation, they never actually caught him. And the case is actually technically still open. So I found that the movie was ultimately very disappointing because of that, because it just ends and it's like, well, they never got him. And so I think um, there's a weird comparison, but have you are either of you guys watching season four of The Crown? Yes, I am. So, you know, this is the season uh, with the Diana years, right? Yes. And I think the Diana years would be completely different if you didn't know that Princess Diana was going to tragically die. Wait, um, what happens to Princess Diana? <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I'm just joking. I, of course, knew that. Yes, I, I've yeah. been alive for the last 30 years. Yes. For, for a half second, I was a little concerned that maybe <laughs> I had just ruined it because that no, would be a... <laughs> That's if you completely cut yourself off from pop that. culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so, I mean, I guess same thing should be said about Zodiac. I don't know how I didn't know anything about the Zodiac case, but I, I just didn't. But like, if you don't know that Dan is going to die, then everything in the the series has this like hopeful tone of, Oh, will they, won't they find love? And then it's probably going to be really disappointing for that person who did not know she was going to die when she dies. Right. But knowing that something is leading to tragedy and in the case of Zodiac, knowing that it's leading to him eventually getting away with it adds this kind of despair and this hopelessness that we've been talking about that David Fincher is really good in reveling in. And so I think because of that, the second viewing of the movie made it so much more fascinating. And I I really love this movie as a procedural movie, um, a testament to how awful the compartmentalization of information was before the Internet. All of these things, I think it's it's a really fascinating film. Kyle, why is this your number three? I think this is his most underrated movie. Mm-hmm. I think it, people pass over it quite often um, because he's got so many great films and it's easy to pass over it. But to to a lot of your points, the the mystique 
of the Zodiac Killer and the legend behind it is probably one of the more fascinating serial killer legends out there. And I think the movie with its has a really good ensemble cast with Joan Hall Ruffalo and RDJ and, and the way they pieced that together. Um, I mean, I probably saw it. The first time I saw it was a lot, probably 2013, 2012, maybe somewhere mm-hmm. in that ballpark. And I just remember being blown away by it. And for me, it's when I, when I look at his work, um, especially because this is his first digital film. It's the first time he stepped away from actual film. When, when you take that into account for me, it, I think it's, uh, it's some of his best work. The detail, the drama of the story, I just think it's really phenomenal. Yeah, um, I'm curious. Do you so the the Jake Gyllenhaal character is kind of the the lens into this whole operation that we kind of get to, and it's he's, he's the the focus that we see. And there's this interesting thing where he gets more and more obsessed with the Zodiac case until eventually he's the sole person still investigating it. And the ending is kind of, I guess it's sort of ambiguous, but it's basically saying that Jake Gyllenhaal kind of cracks that it's the one guy that the police were most confident that it was, and they just were never able to get proof on it. And, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal loses his relationship, his kids get pushed away from him and stuff like that. And so he kind of commits his whole identity to investigating this case. And I'm curious if you think that Fincher admires that, because it kind of shows that he eventually got to what we think is the right answer, or do you think he kind of pities him because he's lost so much in it? And I wonder how that relates to a lot of these other characters that Fincher likes to explore, like you know Jesse Eisenberg's um, Mark, uh, what's his name, Mark Zuckerberg, and all of these characters who are so committed to the thing that they do in spite of however it may affect the rest of their life. I think it's a really good question. I don't. I don't get the sense that it's one way or the other, that he either pities or, mm-hmm. I don't know, glorifies it or supports it. I, the way I look at it is just from a, a typical, if you're trying to make a statement about how society is obsessed with serial killers, especially this is pre the world of podcasts and serial <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and what it is today, right? And like the, the whole world of, of true crime podcasts, it's like people fiend for it, right? They don't want true crime in their lives and their personal lives, but they love watching t- true crime from a distance. And for me, what I think is so brilliant about this movie is his character to me is the, uh, he, he exemplifies the obsession that society has with serial killers, not because they necessarily want to see justice, but be- just because they want to find the answer, right? And the, the idea of him losing all of his family and friends and becoming the only person solely focused on it, by that point, I think what Fincher's trying to say is we need to be careful about the bridges we burn and who we leave in the dust in our pursuit of obsession, Right, and that's that's why I really enjoy this movie, um, in particular Joan Hall's character, and I think Joan Hall is just an excellent actor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Marty, the point you brought up is I that is one of the reasons why it's not higher up on my list. Guaranteed is I was frustrated wholeheartedly by the ending. Mm-hmm. I knew that the Zodiac killer was a thing. Um, I didn't know the outcome. I knew that uh, it was just you know whenever someone talks about serial killers that gets brought up and based on what Kyle just said as well, like I am that person where I was frustrated. I was like, so we don't know who did this. I don't want to like, why'd you even tell me this story? Like there's something yeah. <laughs> missing now in me. Like I want to know this. Um, and so if I was to rewatch it, I'd be interested to see if I 
share the similar feelings that you have where I can focus more on the characters and what they're sacrificing now that I know that they're not going to get what they want out of it. Yeah, I think I, I don't, I'd be interested to see if you end up doing that. Let me know, because I I was like there are very few movies where I will watch it a second time and I'll have a completely different opinion. But this one was one of them where I was just like, damn, I don't know what I was thinking the first time because it is it, it is exquisite. Um, And even just in like capturing a, a period of time, you know, I feel like we have so many of these crime or, uh, you know, neo-noir films that are investigating things in an era where information is easily accessible or the crime is something like a murder in a city so it only involves nypd or something but in this film it you have to branch all these different pieces of government because it's it's the fbi's problem it's navarro Mm -hmm. police department's problem it's the california state police's department all of this stuff and just how frustrating everything must have been before you could go onto google and google things or like access this database of information it's fascinating that anybody was able to get anything done before this much less you know solve crimes like this it's just a a real testament to a, a period of time this is one of those movies that makes you wonder how there weren't more serial killers at that time period like no one knew how to find anything so like of course a sicko like this could just go unchecked for the rest of his life because the internet didn't exist yet and when you watch it in this time period back then you're like that is a terrifying time to be alive and no one seems to remark on how scary uh (laughs) you know hitchhiking in the 70s and all that stuff was back then it doesn't get brought up enough yeah absolutely and i mean like even the the little things like um there's one scene where who we presume is the zodiac killer um stops his car to help a woman who is having like tire trouble or he makes up the tire trouble whatever and she's just stuck without tire in her car on the side of the road like she doesn't have a cell phone and that sounds like such a privileged or like millennial thing to say or whatever jenna whatever but like holy shit i couldn't imagine driving in the dark with a baby and not having a way to access 911 if if needed and it's just like it's terrifying you just hope a car driving by stops and isn't just like some person going on with their day is like, Oh, I'm not stopping for that. You're like, cool. I guess I have to wait five hours till another car swings by <laughs> and hope for the best. Yeah. Or you hope it's not the Zodiac killer, yeah, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> worst case knows, scenario, man. I get a serial killer stops to help with my tire. Yeah. yeah it's just bad luck. You know, just found you that day. So. The one other thing I'll say about this movie is that if bars ever fully open up again, I'm definitely going to try an aqua velva, <laughs> which is a drink that Jake Gyllenhaal loves in this movie. It's like a blue fruity drink, and it looks amazing, and I can't wait to try it. I don't know if either of you have had an Aqua Velva. No, but I know of another bright blue drink called an Adios Motherfucker that you could try. (laughs) Choose your adventure, my friend. Aqua Velva, I thought, was like a cologne. I did not know that was a drink. (laughs) Are you thinking of like Blue Steel? um, (laughs) I don't know, man. The Zoolander thing? (laughs) Aqua Velva sounds like something like your grandpa would wear back in the day. I don't know. It doesn't sound like a drink to me. Well, it looks delicious. I Googled it. It's a real thing. So I'm trying it day one. I feel comfortable going into a bar. Yeah. Three years from now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if I'm, if I'm still drinking alcohol at that point. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So Zodiac is my number four and it is Kyle's number three. 
So here, let's go ahead and just take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our countdown of our top five favorite Fincher films. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with our top five favorite Fincher films. So moving on to, I believe it is James's number three, because Kyle, your number three was, as we just talked about, Zodiac. So my number three was Fight Club. So I would actually be down to my number two at this point. Oh, okay. And yeah, my number three is Gone Girl. So our threes are gone. (laughs) Um, So I guess we can throw, let's go ahead and just throw back to Kyle then for his number two. See, at the start of this, you you made it sound like a bad thing that I get to go first, but I get to walk. I get to just present all the films. So yeah. Like, <laughs> so it sounds like we might we might all have the same top two. They might be switched around, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Number two for me is seven. Oh, I thought you were going to say Aliens three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Aliens cubed. No, that one's good. Yeah, my the, of the eight I've seen, Aliens cubed is going to be number eight. So, <laughs> yeah. Same, same here. You're not missing much. <laughs> It's it's not uh, of the best alien films, and so if it's not going to be a top alien film, it's not going to make the top of the Fincher list. Yeah. Um, for me, Seven is number two. Um, when I think this was my intro to Fincher's work, and as a movie that I still own on DVD and that I will rewatch from time to time, um, love Morgan Freeman, love Brad Pitt. It has one of the most iconic lines in movie history, and what's in the fucking box? Dude, come on. It's been mocked a thousand times. My, my wife hasn't even seen the movie and she knows that joke because she's like, why does everyone make that joke? Can you explain it to me? It's like, he finds he finds his wife's head in the box and he says what's in the box a lot. And she's like, okay, now I get it. That does sound funny when everyone mocks it all the time. <laughs> well, I, I remember there was this... Uh, classic comedy. Yeah, classic comedy. It was this mocking of uh, icing people. And it was taking all these classic movie scenes and putting someone like pulling a, a bottle of Schmirnoff ice out. And one <laughs> of them was in seven. And he's like, what's in the fucking box? And it shows Freeman pulling out a, a, a Schmirnoff ice. So um, it's just, a, it's a really good thriller. The set design is incredibly meticulous. When I look at the, I think when I compare set design of all of his films, this is the one that stands out the, the most for me. Just because mm-hmm. they were able to get so creative with all the death scenes. And then the idea of the the seven sins is a, it's a very relatable concept for a lot of folks who may or may not be raised religious and understand that concept. But two, it makes it from a storyline standpoint intriguing and easy to follow because you know after they introduce the first couple that there's five more coming and you just don't know how they're going to come. But it kind of puts you to the front of your seat because you, you kind of know what's coming and you're just excited to see the creativity that comes with it. So. Those are many of the reasons I chose seven as my number two. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. 
Seven is also my number two, but I'm curious, James, is this your number two? Is this your number one? Is it not on my your list? Number one. Okay. I love seven. All right. Go ahead and wax poetically. Then. <laughs> yes, Get I the will. To you. I, uh, this was one of those movies that I felt like it was the perfect combination of like a really dark story and Fincher's directing style, like coming together. And it is, there are so many scenes that like stick with you where you only will have to see this movie once where you're like, well, I'll remember that for the rest of my life, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And you rewatch it and you know where it's going. And then there are other scenes that stick out to you where you're like, Oh my God, this is so much worse than I thought it was. It's so heavy, but it's one of those movies that it's like such a mental thriller. Um, It's, it reminds me a lot of like silence of the lambs where it's a fun thriller. It's a fun thriller. It's a fun thriller. And then when it tips its toe into like horror, you're like, Oh my God, I didn't, why did I see that? Oh, that was <laughs> disgusting. Like actually, actually gruesome. And then I think the twist that obviously uh, has been spoiled many times over already that ties it all together is what makes it so iconic because you get Kevin Spacey um, who gives this performance of this cold, calculated, nothing matters kind of serial killer. And it goes really well with these uber emotional Brad Pitt and the worn out kind of Morgan Freeman, mm-hmm. where Morgan Freeman's smart enough to know, like, we're playing into his game and we shouldn't do it. And it doesn't matter to Brad Pitt the whole time. He's like, I'm this young, passionate guy. I'll just beat the shit out of this psychopath. Like, who cares? And... I I love the twist ending and I also love how much it gets mocked. There's a, there's an episode of um, workaholics where they're having a birthday party and he has a present there. And every person, <laughs> every person who walks into the room is like, Oh, what's in the box? You know, like seven guys. And every person makes the same joke when they walk in and they're like, Oh, what's in the box. And they all just keep making the same joke as the party goes on. And like thinking it's the most creative original joke you can make. <laughs> if you repeat it 50 times it's amazing it is it is a pretty good scene and it is so over the top that like if you were to just watch it without the context of what's going on at that moment in the movie it would be like oh my god he's overselling it a little bit but then obviously <laughs> yeah, then you, you know then you watch the movie and you're like nope that's about that's accurate yep that's what, that, that yeah. would be how people would react yeah, um, I think so. I, I rewatched this one also about a week ago at this point, and I think if I had ranked these films before that rewatch, I would have had seven at around five, and maybe switched seven and Fight Club. Uh, Fight Club. But I think everything that you guys are saying about seven, I just got so much more of on that second viewing. And what really struck me about it is. Kyle, what you were saying about how efficient the execution of this brilliant premise is. Like, it's like the best 30-second pitch for a movie is a serial killer kills his victims for committing one of the seven deadly sins. You know, like, just that premise alone makes for an incredibly entertaining movie. And so I think you can watch this movie without even really thinking too hard about it. And just being kind of captivated and excited and really having that easy pacing that you were saying of one scene and then another crime and then another crime. And so that's really fun. But then talking about the set dressings and how well crafted the film is, I think is just fascinating. And I love 
that this film is pitched almost as this ambiguous good versus this ambiguous evil and how so much of the film is so nonspecific. And like, of course, you've got John Doe is the most nonspecific name you can give a character. But then like, it's never clear where this takes place. Um, All the police cars say police instead of NYPD or something. They say that Morgan Freeman has been living in the city for so long, but they never clarify what city it is. And I think that's such a brilliant, intentional move to make this about humanity as a whole. And I mean, that makes it that much more depressing, which is like crazy that this depressing and this negative of a film is this high on all of our lists. Oh, dude, the depressing is like the main he drives it home. It rains for the entirety of the movie yeah. until the end, which is not a happy ending. It's like rain, rain, misery, misery, misery. Oh, the sun is out, but this is the worst day of your life. And you're like, oh my God, it, it is very dark and dark on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing that's cool is that in that moment, that climax moment, you know, we're saying we know that Kevin Spacey wants to get killed by Brad Pitt, and we know that Morgan Freeman is trying to stop it. But there is, at least for me, when I was watching it, where like I, I want Brad Pitt to kill him, or like I'm at least conflicted. Like, oh, this guy definitely deserves it. I understand you doing that, and it, this, this struggle that Brad Pitt is facing is also what the audience is facing. I think that's really smart and really engaging way to end the film. Yeah, it asks, would you do that? And everyone's like, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think I'd give him what he wants, and that, that sucks, but it's, I got to live with it. So that is seven, or S7N. Um, it's me and Kyle's number two, and it is James's number one. So that leaves me and Kyle's number one. I would bet one billion friends on Facebook that I know <laughs> what your number one is. But why don't you take it away, uh, Kyle? What is your number one feature film? Should we go to James for his number two, which is going to be our number one? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, so uh, this one is Alien 3. No, I'm just kidding. It's, not, so my <laughs> it's, a, blind, two, it's a blind recommendation for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it just it sounds intriguing, guys. I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> I really love studio interference films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my favorite. Uh, no, yes, my number two is what I believe is your guys' number one. And I think a lot of people, it's their number one when it comes to Fincher. And it's the social network. You set me up. You're going to blame me because you were the business head of the company and you made a bad business deal with your own company. It's going to be like I'm not a part of Facebook. It won't be like you're not a part of Facebook. You're not a part of Facebook. My name's on the masthead. You might want to check again. It's because I froze the account? You think we were going to let you parade around in your ridiculous suits pretending you were running this company? Sorry! My Prada's at the cleaners! Along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip-flops, you pretentious douchebag! Security's here. You'll be leaving now? I'm not signing those papers. We will get the signature. Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. You... You did it! I knew you did it! You planted that story about the chicken! I didn't plant the story about the What's he talking about? You have me accused of animal cruelty. Seriously, what the hell's the chicken? And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. The story of Mark Zuckerberg is a story I did not know, and I think the mixture of 
Fincher's directing style and Sorkin's screenplay went really well together because Sorkin is known for his fast witty banter and his levels of uh, dialogue that are to the point where like normal human beings can't really talk that fast and aren't that precise and smart with their comebacks to one another. But this story isn't about normal human beings. The story is about geniuses from Harvard who are sociopaths when it comes to competition. And it plays really well into this where it's a, wow, this guy's kind of a dick. Oh no. Yeah. No, he's not kind of a dick. He's, he's actually a dick. He's just a brilliant dick. And then you're like, okay, now I see where this story is going. And I I thought uh, social network was awesome. Yeah, this movie is a bullet train. It is moving at 150 miles per hour. It is basically hovering on the rails. It's like one of those futuristic bullet trains. It's so effortless. Um, This is one of those movies that seems like it was almost so easy how it was so well made that I watched the movie and I'm like, how do bad movies get made when you have a movie like this? It is just everything is working pitch perfectly, in my opinion, like forget the even like the the commentary on what is quickly becoming very true about our society which is that the internet is ruining us all and you mm-hmm. know this particular type of tech dude bro energy is awful and all of this stuff like it is just such a compelling drama to watch mm-hmm. Andrew Garfield yell at Mark Zuckerberg or Jesse Eisenberg yep. like that alone when he says lawyer up asshole I'm not coming yeah. back to part of it I'm coming back for all of it like that scene is so powerful the scene's great it's the yeah you're gonna try to outsmart me and out business me and out ruthless me but I'm your friend and I'm gonna break your computer right here so you could go fuck yourself man like and it like it pulls Mark Zuckerberg yeah. out of his like zone where he's like oh, I never comprehended that this guy might fight me here in my office. Like that never really crossed my mind. I also love the opening scene where Zuckerberg's on a date and he thinks that women don't like him because he perceives himself as like nerdy or, you know, uh, just not like the cool guys. And she very clearly is like, no, women don't like you because you're an asshole. It has nothing to do with what you think people perceive you as. It's because you're actually a mean person. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's the case. It's like, no, that's, that's what we all think. Like we, none of us like you because you're not a nice person. You're insufferable. (laughs) Well, that, and that, and that's what makes the movie so brilliant because you start on that tone and then you finish with the last scene with him and Rashida Jones, where she says, you know, Mark, you're not an asshole. You're just trying so hard to be one. And he he desperately want to be that guy. And he is, you know, he's this loner at that point in time. He's destroyed all of his friendships and relationships, just become the youngest billionaire in history or the youngest billionaire living at that time. And it's just him and his Facebook profile stalking his ex. That is such a a perfect ending scene. And I don't, I don't, not, you know, I know people can criticize how much Sorkin uses exposition in his scripts, right? And when it just talking at you and telling you what's going on. But I think in this case that in that particular scene, it's done pretty well. Yeah, well, and especially the way that the film is kind of framed as flashbacks during these two separate but equally ridiculous, um, I don't know if they're lawsuits or whatever they're called. I don't know what the technical term is, though, but like just the way that Sorkin is so good at having people confronting each other and making Mm -hmm. that the framework that the story is told. It's just it's brilliant. Um, And I think it's amazing that this film 
had so much foresight. I, I it has to yeah. be on accident, but it has aged so well. Yeah, <laughs> incredibly well. It's spot on. Yeah, I mean, I there's not a whole lot novel that I can say about this movie. It's just it's just so good. Um, I I love also Justin Timberlake in this, which yeah. at the time was definitely that thing when Justin Timberlake was trying to get into acting more. And this was one of the examples where it just worked so well. Mm-hmm. And he's so charismatic. You can completely understand why he gets to where he gets to go. And I think across the board, all the acting in this movie is phenomenal. Yep. Garfield and Eisenberg. Eisenberg's personality as a human, I think, I don't think he was doing much acting. I yeah. feel like that was <laughs> right up his alley. And I mean, this launched Army Hammer's career in a lot of ways. I and mean, then this put him on, on the map as an actor. You know, playing two twins, playing two characters. They probably were wondering where the other uh, Winklevoss was. Army, where's your brother? Dude, there's so <laughs> many good young actors in this movie, though. It's you get uh, Rashida Jones, you get Rooney Mara, you get Dakota Johnson. Like, yeah, and like a bit part. Yeah, these are just like small roles for future stars. Fincher's always been really good at that, at having like even the smallest roles be people that are just on the cusp of stardom, like. In Fight Club, you've got Jared Leto as like the guy that Edward Norton beats the shit out of. Yeah, he's got like three lines in the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> Future Academy Award winner. It's crazy. I just watched yeah. a different movie with Jared Leto where he plays like a rock singer uh, in one scene, but I can't remember what it's called. Well, wow. he, had, he was a rock singer for a little while there with 30 Seconds to Mars. Yeah, he just yeah. plays like a, he plays not 30 Seconds to Mars, but a different rocker in this really shitty movie. I, I just don't remember what it's called. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know what else to say about the social network other than like, if for some reason you, you haven't seen it, then yeah, like this is, this is in the question as like one of the best movies of the last decade, in my opinion. Yeah, um, so yeah, just, just a really efficient and incredibly well done movie. I, and, that's all I can say. The score yeah. is really good too. The score is very memorable. I think this this and Zodiac are his two films that are on BBC's 100 Greatest Films of the 21st Century. Oh, I really? This one's higher. Yeah. When you rewatch it, you realize how like innocent the invention of Facebook was, and how inner, innocent the internet used to be, and how it immediately spirals out of control. Where it starts off as like. Wouldn't it be cool to know what your friend is doing right now and like, you know, get updates on that to where we are today, where it's this hellscape yeah. of not only <laughs> do you know what your memes. friend's doing, yeah, you know, you know what they had for breakfast, what they liked, what they don't like, or what your crazy uncle thinks about politics. It's like everything. And to see it started with, you know, just a couple of dudes have who had a good idea in their dorm room. It's really fascinating. I mean, what's even more perhaps fascinating or harrowing or whatever is that before that the thing that he was doing was like i think i believe he used the same sort of algorithm or whatever to make facebook as he did to have a thing where you could rate the pictures of coeds yeah it's like the first tinder yeah 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 which is disgusting um (laughs) just like that that was the framework for facebook is pretty damn telling and again, talk about foresight and aging well. It's just like amazing that they were able to capture what became one of the biggest problems of like social media and everything before social media was even a thing. 
So well, and, uh, Bo Burnham. I don't know if you guys are fans of Bo Burnham, but he, in one of his stand-up specials, um, he talks a lot about this concept of performing and the idea of what all social networking is is a generation's response, like the market's response to a generation that demanded to perform for each other. And, and you know, it's a it's a, a generation of young people now. It's obviously folks. You know, it's, it, you can go all the way to 80, 90, 100 of uh, people that just want to kind of perform for all their friends all the time and then just sit back at the end of the day and watch their life as a satisfied customer right and the idea of we're we're always on like it's the truman show and that's not necessarily healthy at the end of the day oh no i mean suicide rates have skyrocketed in the last decade and ties to social media are a huge part of it because no one puts out on social media that Hey, th- things aren't going great for me. Uh, what people put out on social media is that my life is perfect. And the fact that your life is imperfect is your fault. That's not my fault. And what happens is everyone just gets sad. It's just a sadness machine. Um, and it started with douchebag guys being like, I think that chick's hotter than this chick. And when you boil it down to its most basic form, that's a sad thing for people to say to other people. And that's how it started. Yeah, and that's to an extent still what it is, right? Yep. Like, you know. And the reason this movie is so important is because it highlights one, a lot of what goes on with capitalism capitalism and litigation with social networking and all of it's about making money at the end of the day. But what what it really has shown us is how much um, people have weaponized social networking to manipulate people's psychology. And there's some other documentaries that are out there for that. But the idea of just understanding dopamine and uh, the different chemicals that affect our body and notifications and this idea of like we need to, to, to get approval and affirmation from our peers all the time. I mean, they've weaponized it and really, um, really manipulated people without their knowledge, which sucks. But That's uh, the social dilemma that a documentary on Netflix is all about that, dude. Yeah, that's, that's the one I was generally speaking to, but then yeah. I know there are a few more out there too that hit that. Yeah, so I, I, I think the social network and the social dilemma are probably a pretty good like one, two, maybe yeah. not the most uplifting movies <laughs> to watch right sure. now, but. How it started, how it's going. Not great. <laughs> yeah, it's not that's going true. great. Yeah. So it's a longitudinal study. There you go, a little <laughs> interaction. All right, so I'll go ahead and end that conversation uh, there before we get into a huge, huge yeah, bigger side one. tangent. Yeah. <laughs> But um, let's go ahead and just quickly recap each of our picks. So, Kyle, we'll start with you. Can you just give me your top five films, starting at number five? Yep, five was Fight Club, four was Gone Girl, three, Zodiac, two, seven, and one, The Social Network. And James, what about you? Five was The Game, four was Gone Girl, three was Fight Club, two was Social Network, and one was S7N. (laughs) Thank you for committing. My five was uh, Fight Club. My four was Zodiac. Three was Gone Girl. Two was Seven and or Seven N. And one was The Social Network. So my arts were just flipped. Three and four. Really? That's it? Yeah. Yep. Wow. And that's, remember when I said earlier, those are the two I was struggling with? Three and four <laughs> for me. So I like that. Thank you. You can, you know, you can come on this podcast anytime and agree with me if you'd like. So. <laughs> Consider it an open invitation if you ever want to just support my opinion. I, you're more yeah. than welcome. Oh, that's like my favorite thing when I'm right. Oof, the best. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> after hearing your guys' lists. Now I'm going to think about it for a while. No, I'm I'm very um, supportive of your list as well. I I have <laughs> I, I think if you had like 
been like the game is number one i may have taken some you know problems with that <laughs> but i think that's a perfectly five fine five and um we'll see what you think on your second viewing of zodiac i'll just leave it at that fair enough <laughs> uh so are you guys inter- uh are you guys excited about mank do you think this is a film that could contend for the top five or what are we thinking here it may be too niche of content to appeal to a large crowd it may it may be one of those movies that will will be better years later that it will be more mm-hmm. appreciated but i think talking about hollywood and it's just kind of a niche content that a lot of people may not jive with at least that's my instinct right now yeah that's what i'm feeling too that people are going to love it if they're really big cinephiles but it'll be a real contender or it'll be a real good indication of how many people actually are cinephiles and i don't even know if i'm cinephile enough to to like it so <laughs> fingers crossed we'll see <laughs> james Tyler, what about you we've spoken about like that exact point before where you know of the group of friends that we have outside of the podcasting world all three of us are probably the the three that are the most obsessed with movies that we know yeah. and then there are some movies that are about Hollywood and films that are so much more niche than even I find interesting. One of the examples is uh, the movie like get shorty back in the day. Like everyone loved that movie and I watched it and for one of our podcasts and I was like, these are a lot of inside Hollywood jokes that I'm not inside on. And (laughs) I could understand why a critic would be like, Oh my God, that's hilarious. But for me who doesn't know what the joke's about, like it's not that funny. And this could be like that or every once in a while when you get a film that's taking chances, like it seems like this one is, and they can knock it out of the park. I lean more towards the, the nervous side after watching the preview, Mm -hmm. but I'll go into it with an open mind and hope that it all comes together. Yeah. I'm, I think the one that's closest to what I'm a little worried about is like uh, the Birdman type of movie where I appreciated it, but I didn't love it nearly as much as a lot of people seem to. And it was just Mm -hmm. like a little too, cinephilic for me to really enjoy but i'm i'm optimistic if not uh hesitant i guess i have nightmares about that year because that was a year with flash got snubbed for best picture and uh, uh, that's like still, kyle's favorite movie yeah I'm still upset over that but here I, I like so the comparison to birdman but i think i think there's a better comparison because birdman still went on to win best picture so it had wide enough appeal to mm-hmm. get people excited the one i compare it to is hail caesar from 2016 because that okay. was you know, the Coen Brothers, a Hollywood movie in the, about the 1950s that um, the people who get it really enjoy it. And others are just like, meh, it's a meh Coen Brothers movie about Hollywood. So that's that's the one I think I want to think of make. Hopefully I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like Tail Caesar, so fingers crossed. Same, same. All right. So this has been our review of our favorite films from David Fincher. James, it's always a blast talking to you. And Kyle, thank you so much for joining us as well. Um, Hopefully I can have both of you guys back on soon. Like I said, Kyle, anytime you want to agree with me, feel free to just come on and agree with me. Kyle, one thing I do that... No, exactly. So what you need to do is you just need to follow Madi on Twitter 
And then when you come on here and he asks you, what's something you've seen? You just need to pick something that he loves. Uh, that's what I've done the last few times I was on here and yep. <laughs> uh, it's gone really well. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. It, it works out perfectly. <laughs> yeah. It's like James is one of my favorite guests. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, well, what movies have you seen? I was like, have you ever heard of this movie? He's like, that's literally my favorite movie. I was like, Oh, you don't say. James Strange. Right. Exactly. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, definitely would love to, uh, love to have both of you guys back on soon. Um, is there anything specific that you want to plug while we're here? Yeah, I suppose we should plug the the podcast, right, James? I mean, I I guess if you're feeling if you're feeling up to it, Kyle, by all means. Okay, well, James, <laughs> you you fill in the gaps if I miss anything. So, we started Munson's and Movies back in February. We just finished episode twenty three. Um, we just pushed out our Allison Brie episode that went live last Thursday. So, go check that out if you're a fan of Allison Brie and her work um, to get a better idea of how how uh, how the Munson's rated her. But if you if you don't know what the Munsons of the movies is. We, as uh, Monty mentioned earlier, we, we cover random actors based on our wheel that decides. We put out a new episode every two weeks and we do a deep dive on their career on and off screen. And so what our last three actors have been, Gary Cole, Danny Trejo, Allison Brie, and who was right, and Brian Cranston are our last four. So this is kind of all over the place, but we like to bring on great guests and Monty will be joining us at some point in 2021. Yeah, I think in January, right? Yeah, don't tell the world which uh, actor you're covering, but... <laughs> oh, God, it's already been decided. See, my, like, I don't even know who we're covering at that point, but I'm excited <laughs> to have you on. I My lips are sealed. I'm, I'm so scared. I'm not going to tell. <laughs> it's, somebody, it's somebody that Monty likes, so, you know, James, pay attention to his Twitter. Maybe you'll be able to figure this out. So it's somebody from Inside Out or from Peanut Butter Falcon? <laughs> Actually, No. But um, <laughs> I, I may have to be careful with my now watchings because I know you you do follow me, so I, I don't yeah, want to like, true. you know. Yeah, you can't leave a lot of head. breadcrumbs on your uh, on your Twitter on that front because you want to keep it somewhat of a, of a uh, surprise for James. I should just do like fake movies that I've been yeah. watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, wow, I haven't even heard of that. Is that new? Well, that's yeah. Crazy. <laughs> or I'll give you the other four actors that are on the wheel for that week, Monty, and you can just say you're watching movies from all five of the actors. Mm. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Throw that. me off. Yeah. yeah. This is, it's all, I'm going to just build my whole like viewing schedule around fucking with James psychologically. Just being like, just oh have him guessing God. the whole time on the off it's chance like, he sees my tweets. He has uh, odd taste in movies. He is all over the place right now. Yeah. I'm sure James will be honored for you to just troll him like that. On yeah. The yeah. Level. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, check us out. We're on Twitter at Munson's at Movies and Instagram at Munson's at the Movies. Feel free to follow us. And I'll uh, I'll provide all those links in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, man. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. 
So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by the Mikes from Mike, Mike, and Oscar to talk about Netflix's Hillbilly Elegy. Um, We have had some scheduling issues with that, so hopefully that will be next week, followed by my review of David Fincher's Mank the next week with a very exciting guest. So just stay tuned for all of that. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.